Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. Uh, please stay tuned. We're going to have a f- fascinating interview today with Andrew Boyd, who is the author of a scary and inspiring book called I Want a Better Catastrophe. I would like to welcome, I am so honored to have on Wild Oak Living today, Andrew Boyd, who is the author of this book I just mentioned, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. I'm especially interested in the gallows humor, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get there. Um, let me tell you what, about this program that's coming up today. We're all sort of, you know, facing loss and despair all over the world. And how do we remain engaged instead of tuning out? How do we continue to live? What is still worth doing? Is there reason for hope? Gosh, I sure hope so. Today, we're going to be talking with Andrew Boyd, as I said, about his book, I Want a Better Catastrophe. Andrew Boyd finds answers um, that will surprise, inspire, and maybe even make you laugh, I'm hoping. Drawing on wisdom traditions, Eastern, Western, and Indigenous, Boyd crafts an insightful and irreverent guide for achieving a better catastrophe. The book is an existential existential manual for tragic optimists, uh, can-do pessimists, compassionate doomers, and it navigates between the denial and doom many of us feel and f- to find a third way of approaching our situation, courageously facing the data and its ramifications and helping people imagine what is still possible and where we might yet exercise agency and make a difference. The book is vital reading for everyone navigating climate anxiety and grief as our world hurdles towards an unthinkable crisis. Welcome to Wild Oak Living, Andrew Boyd. Reading your book, okay. <laughs> reading your book was kind of a journey for me, and it seems mm-hmm. to me like writing the book for you was kind of a, a much longer journey for you than it was for me <laughs> to read it, of course, because I think I think it took you several years to write that book, or at least it yeah. reflects a journey of several years. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, for what what was sort of the initial impetus and 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 the journey that you underwent as you wrote this book? Well, first of all, uh, Joanna, it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for having me on the show, and uh, hello to Northern California, one of my absolute favorite parts of the world. Me too. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yes, um, and I appreciate that you're appreciating the book. Uh, yes, it was a journey for me. The book is, you know, took many years, possibly as much as you know, depends when you count it. You know, seven, eight, or nine years, you know, overall, to to bring out the book. Uh, it's not the only thing I was doing during those years, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I'm a lifelong activist. I've worked in many causes, and uh, a kind of a hope um, uh, has fueled those causes, and sometimes fueled me, you know, to victory. And uh, but having worked on the you know, and that was, uh, you know, uh, solidarity with South Africans overthrowing apartheid, uh, calming uh, nuclear arms race, uh, expanding affordable housing in, you know, various uh, urban areas that I've lived in, uh, trying to eradicate sweatshops, you know, you name it. I've worked on those on those issues and hope has uh, powered me through it. Um, however, the climate issue, you know, which I've worked on for most of the last decade, was a different a different beast, a different animal. It felt less like, um, or I hit a hit a moment where I realized this is less a problem you can solve and more of a predicament that we must face, and that requires a different kind of hope. You know, it's not something you can, uh, you know, identify the problem, come figure out the solution, gather your gather your people, um, and you know, struggle your way, even if it's difficult and requires sacrifices to a sort of victory where you get past the problem. This is a problem we're going to have to live with for a long time over over many generations. Um, because we've, you know, started to solve it uh, way too late. You know, we should have really been making very recording in progress. Oh, very I'm strong. So, I'm sorry, uh, that should have been come on much earlier. No go, worries, go no ahead. Um, uh, yeah. So we needed to really begin to make a very bold, uh, across the board transition from uh, destructive fossil fuels to uh, safer, cleaner. Um, more decentralized uh, renewable forms of energy, you know, 30, 40 years ago at, at speed and scale. Um, and because the fossil fuel companies uh, for very self-interested, you know, profit driven and just sort of inertia reasons 
uh, didn't want that to happen. You know, they want to make as much money as they can before they're forced to stop, um, you know, pulling poison out of the earth and putting it into our atmosphere to pollute uh, and to, you know, wreck our future. Um, you know, they cast doubt on the science. Uh, there was a, you know, uh, a near universal con consensus uh, amongst the world scientists that this was a human made problem. And we, you know, how to, and they pretty much how to fix it. Um, so uh, we are now in a place where we have a choice. You know, we're, we're, we passed certain critical red lines on the biodiversity front on, uh, you know, availability of water in the future, uh, particularly on, on the warming levels of the planet. You know, we are Paris Accords committed us to 1.5 degrees centigrade warming, and we shouldn't go past that without, you know, dire consequences to um, our people and the planet. We are it's currently on life support, that goal to stay under that level of warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I sort of hit a place where whoa, um, um, this requires a different kind of hope, something much more robust, something more grounded, something uh, more, you know, uh, where I can hold, not just like eyes on the prize, get her done kind of a thing, but like uh, a more resilient kind of hope that can help me walk through this darkness. So I went out, so I hit a crisis of hope and uh, there's a rough patch for me. And I went out in search of um, you know, talking to Americans from all walks of life and in particular seeking out uh, climate thought leaders who had also realized this and realized this far earlier than I had and had developed strategies and stories and spiritual and philosophical approaches for how to have a more robust kind of hope and how to walk through this darkness. And uh, yeah, in the book, helps us all as i walk that journey i bring the reader along to walk it as well and provide lots of resources and approaches for us to uh, not fall into despair but also not fall into false hopes so how to that middle place of like recognizing how bad things are but all that there is still to be done um, and how we can take care of our communities and our beloved places and our the, our, the people we love and craft a, a world that um, uh, is maybe humbled uh, and powered down a little bit, but uh, higher quality of life in the end. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, protect all that we can and, and find a sustainable way to live as humans in this natural, regenerative, natural uh, approach to the, to the, to our, to our, the world and the life systems that we depend on. So that's a, that's a little bit of all the things there. Um, and humor, humor plays a very important role as one very important resource for helping us uh, to to stay sane and grounded and honest. I have to tell you, when I when I read the title of the book to people, especially the subtitle, and of course, you know, the last two words are are gallows humor. I heard quite a few gasps. People would gasp, you know, like, how can you make fun of something like right. like this existential tragedy that, you know, that is not going to inflict the world, that is already being inflicted yes, on the world. that's right. Um, and, and that's... Um, you know that's something I'd like I'd like to focus on a bit, but but sure. before we get there, I would like to start with denial, because I realized when I read the, your book that there are different kinds of climate change deniers. At least that's yes. what it sounded like to me. There's the kind that says it's not happening, you know, and it's not our fault, and you know, and but then there's also people who. Uh, who know it's happening, but who, and, yeah. and I have to count myself among these, who were sort of denying the fact that it is a as far along as it is, and that it's as irreversible as it is. And I want you to talk a bit about that, because in the yeah, introduction sure. to your book, you, you talk a bit about this journey of, of, of coming to recognize that, and why so many people who've recognized that a long time ago didn't tell it, didn't want to tell us about it. Right, for sure. So uh, very... Uh, great questions. Um, I, I sort of was uh, in my exploration. Um, I identified four kinds of climate denial. Uh, you know, one is the uh, totally batshit 
crazy version of climate denial. You know, Mar uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene believing that California forest fires are created oh, by, by the Jewish way, space. I, 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 right? I, should, I should have reminded you because ah, yes. that, that, that we are under FCC rules. So Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I will avoid that S word then. Yes. So and, the, and, the, and, the other, uh, and the other one that frequently appears in your book. <laughs> ah, yes. Right. 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 Uh, I'm from New York. Come on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but not on the air. You got it. Um, okay. So the, the off the, um, off the, off your rocker kind of, kind of denial, mm -hmm. you know, which we most famously have heard from, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, that California forest fires were created by Jewish space lasers. Okay. That's one kind of denial. There's another kind of denial, which you just, you know, which I consider a bit of is somewhat for, much, much more forgivable, which is the people who grew up in very extremely religious households, you know, maybe uh, were not, uh, have very, very low levels of scientific literacy or, or just, just, you know, ha spending all their time just trying to keep body and soul together and, and I just uh, aren't able to wrap their head around the, the science and what's happening. So it's like, okay, okay, that's that's not your fault. And then there's the utterly, utterly, utterly unforgivable kind of denial, which is, I think you were alluding to, which is the strategic and cynical and very deliberate denial uh, that the fossil fuel industry and its political handmaidens had been practicing for decades when they realized, and you know, Exxon had the, the, the best geologists in the world. They knew um, 50 years ago, and there's documented evidence in many court cases, um, uh, taking them, uh, you know, taking them to court because they knew and, and said nothing. Not only did they say nothing, they spent a hundred million dollars on lobbyists uh, to sh cast shade on the scientific consensus um, and play the cultural divides in our country to uh, separate us around the solutions, uh, you know, and, and to, to avoid, uh, to basically block off the solutions and avoid progress on this issue for decades. You know, the first congressional testimony was 36 years ago in the Senate. It took us that many years to pass a significant piece of climate legislation, very much because of these people. So here's one way to characterize it. And I'll just read this short paragraph from the book because it's, it gets into the gallows humor aspect of it a little bit. Um, but it's, again, gallows humor is a way to to say the truth and hold it and and in a more human a bearable kind of way. So here's here's the logic of those that kind of denial. First, they say global warming isn't happening, so we don't have to do anything about it. Then global warming is happening, but it's not caused by humanity, so we don't have to do anything about it. Next, it's on to global warming is happening, it's caused by humanity, but China and India aren't doing anything, so we don't have to do anything about it. When that doesn't work, global warming is happening, it's caused by humanity. Maybe China and India are willing to do something, but science will find a way, so we don't have to do anything about it until finally, sorry folks, Global warming was happening. It was caused by humanity. And previous governments could and should have done something about it, but it's too late now. So we don't have to do anything about it. So that's the logic of this cynical, strategic kind of denial um, practiced by the fossil fuel industry. So they don't have to do anything about it and they can keep making profits while poisoning our future. Um, there's a fourth kind of denial that you also mentioned, which is the kind that those of us who do factually uh, you know, believe in the science uh, practice, which is more of an emotional kind of denial, which is like, whoa, this is all extremely hard to reckon with. You know, I don't want to be thinking all the time about uh, the trouble that lays in wait in our future that we've already baked into our atmosphere. Um, so there's a, we, as one person said, we squint at the apocalypse. You know, there's only so much we can take in uh, at any given moment. And um, I, want to bring a forgiving a for, uh, in the book I sort of say we need to forgive ourselves some of this denial you know as 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 Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who first identified the five stages of grief you know says herself denial helps us to pace our feelings of grief you know denial is a necessary it seems sounds strange to say it and we don't want to we don't want to sort of give in to a a full spectrum, a hundred percent denial, but we need a little bit of it just to sort of maintain our mental health, to maintain our balance, to let in what we can let in at the pace um, and to the degree that we can absorb it. You know, we can't stare at the sun, right? Um, so um, I say, you know, there's a wisdom in denial. Denial buys us the time our hearts need to gradually break open to the terribleness of it all. In this sense, denial is an odd kind of courage. 
a handmaiden to the will, hope's necessary accomplice. And I even speculate that that hope itself might be just a beautiful, human, productive, uplifting, and yes, necessary kind of denial. So I try to bring some thoughtfulness to denial as opposed to there's deniers and there's people who are serious about this and like, let's be angry at them and think of ourselves as the righteous few. That's not uh, being honest with ourselves about all these different layers of denial and it's not being fair to the others either. So we have to take some responsibility. We're all imperfect humans. Um, yeah, we have to honor the science, but but understand that it's emotionally hard for for us to take the, those next steps, um, uh, though we must. Hope is probably my all-time favorite word. It's the reason I do this program. It's the reason I've done this mm. program for 20 years. Um, Mm. because to me and and I was so fascinated I listened to a little short video that you have on YouTube uh, with Peter Bermudis a little short interview nope. about your book and one of the things you say in the book is um, hope is a verb right I love that because you know it's not just sort of a, a state of blue-eyed optimism it's it's much more than that Right. It's a, it's a, arguably a practice, an mm -hmm. ethos. Um, you know, it's not, it's not sitting on the, on your couch, uh, clutching a lottery ticket as, a, as Rebecca Solomon would say, and, you know, uh, it is, it is something that you are committed to. It is something that you do. It's something that you need to recommit to. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't fall into moments of hopelessness, you know, but it is not a mood. It is a practice. You know, it is not a probability. It is a commitment. Um, one of the people, um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I hit this, you know, the book started when I hit this crisis of hope and I went out to talk to, uh, you know, people who thought and who thought deeply about this and who were engaged uh, in spite of knowing how bad things are. You know, these are all inspirational people to me. One of them was uh, climate activist Tinda Christopher, you know, who grew up in Appalachia, saw, you know, all the destruction uh, uh, that the coal barons did to his haulers, um, you know, moved to Utah, fell in love with Red Rock Country. Um, my second most favorite place after Northern California, I'll just say in terms of the... Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's extraordinary. And, um, and you know, became famous for an action where he disrupted an auction of um, oil and gas leases that were uh, going to, you know, uh, wreck uh, some, some of the pristine Red Rock country that he so fell in love with. He um, went in as a bidder and, and bidded and won. Yes. Uh, won the correct. bid. Yeah. yeah. He mm -hmm. became a he, he unexpectedly to him he became a bidder and started started to buy up the leases without you know without actually having any money behind it and they eventually canceled the auction and then it was found to have irregularities and so the the land was eventually protected but by his sort of bold just insertion of himself into this disruption of this auction um, and he had two years in federal penitentiary and made this beautiful speech at his sentencing incredibly inspiring speech about the power of uh, and role that civil disobedience has paid throughout. American history and securing many of the things we take, you know, the social victories that we take for granted. In any case, I re-interviewed him in the middle of a rainstorm in Manhattan. And um, he said, he, he said something, one of the more powerful things I learned along the way, he said, um, you know, an optimism based hope, a hope that depends on good results is not going to serve us as we walk through, you know, the rest of this 21st century. He understood hope, and I quote, as the will to hold on to our values in the face of difficulty, which I thought was, wow, that's a just a deep reframing, a deep you know, re-understanding of, of what hope is, especially the kind of hope that we need now. So that's, um, yeah, and yeah, that was a, a notable moment in the, in the journey of this book and a piece of wisdom that I you know, put in the book and, and it's hopefully useful to, to readers. I'd like to, to take yourself. a, sorry, yes, definitely. Each of the interviews that, that you uh, document in the book is, is inspiring in its own way, although some of them are quite scary. 
but yeah. I think that's all part of the big picture. Uh, I'd like to just take a moment to let our listeners know that you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on KZYX and Z, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak. I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. It's all the, all about building community in Mendocino County and beyond. And today I'm honored to have as my guest uh, Andrew Boyd, who is the author of a book called I Want a Better Catastrophe. Um, and and uh, I'd like to just give you, in case you've tuned in late, just a little bit of background about my guest. Um, my guest, Andrew Boyd, is a writer, humorist, activist, and CEO, and that translates into Chief Existential Officer of the Climate Clock, a global campaign that blends art, science, and grassroots organizing to get the world to act in time. He also co-created the grief storytelling ritual, The Climate Ribbon, and led the 2000s-era satirical campaign billionaires for Bush. Andrew's previous books include Beautiful Trouble, A Toolbox for Revolution, Daily Afflictions, The Agony of Being Connected to Everything in the Universe, and Life's Little Deconstruction Book, Self-Help for the Post-Hip. His lifelong ambition, cribbed from Milan Kundera, is to unite the utmost seriousness of question with the utmost lightness of form. Andrew Boyd lives in New York City, and he's joining us from there. And thank you again for joining us today, Andrew Boyd. Let's let's um, uh, thank you, Joanna, for having me. And I'll just say I'm not actually in New York City. I'm actually in the Pacific time zone. I'm in um, I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest right now on a book tour, which oh. I'm coming to California with. So I'll actually be in the Bay Area from doing events on the Thursday, April 13th in San Francisco, uh, in Marin uh, on the Monday, the 17th and in Oakland, California on Wednesday. April 19th. So you can uh, find all that, may I just say? Yes. I was just going to ask better, you to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, um, wonderful. I appreciate that. Uh, bettercatastrophe.com is the website and the, the slash tour lists all the dates and the venues and you can RSVP for uh, given events there. So uh, bettercatastrophe.com. Uh, please, and you can read excerpts from the book if you want to check it out before you before you purchase and, you know, read more things about the book and myself. Yeah, thank you. And also uh, in the book and also on your website, you will find resources and other things. Uh, you know, if this conversation or reading the book and or reading the book leaves you inspired to engage uh, and and to practice some kind of active hope uh, or hoping, <laughs> you know, if you want to yeah. if you want to engage, there are there are a number of, of resources in the book. We might as well tell you now in case you can't stay with us. Um, the, uh, their website, uh, sites, I was just going to, um, um, let's see, now I can't, now I'm trying to find uh, where I'm, the websites while, while are. You're finding it, yeah. mm-hmm. While you're finding it, it's a, it's the appendix very close to oh, the end of the book. stuff you know. can still do. Yes, exactly. I, I just found it. Um, and, yeah. and we haven't talked about this yet, but you describe various roles that people can take on in terms of, in terms of going forward. And, and the list of resources is sort of tailored to the kind of role yeah. that you might feel inspired to tell, to take on. So if you want to be a warrior or an engineer or a healer, or a prepper, or a good neighbor, or a policy ninja. We have lots of policy ninjas here in our area. Um, <laughs> a storyteller. We've got great storytellers. A rebel, an artist, a philosopher, a seer, an elder. That's when I'm going to identify with. Or a timekeeper, or a trickster. So depending on what kind of role or roles you want to take on going forward, there are lots of resources uh, at the end of the book, um, and also yeah. more resources, I believe, on your website for people to engage. Yeah and go forward yeah that the full list uh, i thought it was it'd be different and interesting to break it up by like your who you think who is your sort of arc guiding archetype you know i love that um, and yeah so and that feels appropriate for northern california um in my my experience that sort of fits fits the culture pretty well there and um, that whole list of resources and all of the links to the various um places to plug in uh, find your people is is on the website you know that whole list that uh joanna was 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 listing and and, and all the links is right there so and i um, like yeah. i like the fact that that you sort of divided it into archetypes because one of the responses to the information that we get about climate change is you know shut 
is shutdown or, or just yeah. paralysis, right? Because it's yeah. so overwhelming and there's yeah. so much. And, you know, you could, you could, even if you decide you need to do something, you know, rather than just sort of wait for the end of the world and, and sit in doom and gloom, um, where do you go, yeah. right? What do you do? And so yeah. I, I like that you sort of broke it up for us in terms of what kind of identity do we have and what kind of people yeah. do we want to connect with? Yeah, and there's a there's a device in the um, in the book, also uh, which is a, like a little a little flowchart. This is a very small flowchart, not the big flowchart in the book, but a small little flowchart that was shared with me by a, a colleague, um, which guides you to finding uh, where to plug into uh, you know climate action, and it begins with Are you a yes or a no person? You know, a lot of people are different, right? Some people are like, No, I want to stop all the bad stuff. I want to block a pipeline. I want to call out the fossil fuel industry. I want to, you know, you know, pressure my my the mayor of my town because because they're they're not telling the truth about their situation. Uh, I'm a no person, and that's great. We absolutely need that. But then there's people who are more of a yes person, maybe who are more pragmatic, you know, uh, or just uh, more sort of positive and want to rally people together and like create solutions uh, locally, uh, or or you know, or support. Uh, you know, big movements that are crafting national statewide solutions. So there's like, there's a lot of, you know, so it helped, you know, there's not one, there's, there's, we need 10,000 uh, acts. We need 10,000, you know, solutions, you know, let 10,000 solutions bloom kind of a thing. And so this, I, I try to provide resources where people, um, it enhances your life as opposed to just drags you down to be involved. You know, it's where you can, build community, find your people, you know, find meaning in addressing this existential threat to humanity. You know, uh, you, we talk about the doom and gloom and another way to look at that, you can flip it around to being, you know, the glasses being the dark, the dark tinted glass being, you know, half full. This is actually the most important moment, possibly the most important decade in human history. They call it the critical decade, because what we do in this decade will have impacts. What we do or don't do or fail to do will have impacts across uh, human history, arguably across uh, on the earth, across geologic time. You know, it may determine whether we can, you know, have civilizations or not, you know, uh, because uh, as Bill McKibben says, uh, climate change is a timed test. If we lose, if we win later, we lose, right? We have to do it now. We have to bend the carbon uh, dioxide, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emission curve down radically this decade to avoid um, the worst outcomes. And there's a whole movement worldwide in this country, in this state, uh, amongst people uh, on the streets and in positions, you know, in offices of power who are you know, rising up to meet that moment. And uh, I just as my own life experience, I have gained so much just personally and spiritually from being part of these social movements and being part of these causes. Yes, there's the news can hurt and meetings can run long, but uh, a lot of the best people are drawn to doing, you know, to doing the right thing, right? You're, you People bring their best selves to these things. Um, and so I just, uh, yeah, I would uh, encourage people to, there's so many ways to get active and ways that can feed you rather than eat you. Speaking of which, uh, let's circle back to gallows humor. We sort of, okay. we started off with that. Um, and, and maybe this is a good time to go there. Um, how, how how dare you make fun of climate change? And why do we need claim? Why do we need gallows humor in in this in this time of of uh, you know when 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 a lot of people think well you know either either we can we can still fix it maybe or no it's too late we can't fix it and all we can do is is ride it and support each other as much as possible. Right. Well, I don't think yes. No, that that's great. Let's let's definitely talk about gallows humor and and hopefully I'll not just talk about it, but actually say some funny things along the <laughs> way here, <laughs> you know, show don't tell and all that. But um, um, just to sort of touch on your last point, this notion of there being this binary between, you know, is it too late? 
um, or is there still is still time to fix it? You know that notion. I think a lot of people struggle with that, and I I think the the, the one of the central premises of the book, and I you know I go on my own journey to discover this, and I take the readers along to discover it alongside me, which is it's not really that binary. It's it's, it's more about how to hold these contradictions that yes it is too late but then you have to say what is it too late for yes it is too late but it's also never too late so yes it is too late to avoid some degree of you know permanent damage to the planet right and the degree you know some level of extinction of species and some uh real reckoning with the uh the uh kind of how our economy and civilization have basically been conducting a war uh, against nature. You know, yes, it's too late to avoid some of those impacts, but it's not too late to navigate our way through it, even if it's rough navigation to a more sustainable economy and society. So, yes, it's too late, and also it's never too late. You know, never too late to be kind. Never too late to be to be in solidarity with your neighbors. Never too late. Um, to uh, act in defense of people and the planet. So there's so the book helps us to hold those contradictions. So I'll just sort of say that. And then on the humor, on the gallows humor front, you know, this is part of how what I have what I have brought uh, to many causes, cause after cause after cause. And you could say nuclear weapons are not funny, and sweatshops aren't funny, and um, violence, uh, you know, against those less vulnerable isn't funny. But but. Uh, Humor has been a way that oppressed peoples have uh, have survived uh, existentially for you know millennia, right? Um, and I think especially with the you know the bad news that we're all seeing in our feeds uh, on 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 the extreme weather and climate front, humor, gallows humor in particular, is an existential survival strategy. Now it's different than the kind of pure like entertainment or you know cheap entertainment humor, which is often a, a dismissive, a way to sort of keep, you know, numb you to the truth or sort of dismiss it or, uh, you know, shrug it off. This is a way to step into the truth, right? It's a way to step into the truth in a way that is uh, uh, human and potent and empowering and uh, helps you to hold the truth, you know? So like, uh, just to give, try to give some examples from the book uh, on the question of, is it too late or are we headed off a cliff? I go, don't worry. We're not heading off a cliff, just down a sharp, slippery slope that will break half the world, you know? So it's like a way to, you know, it's, that's oddly hopeful. And, and by casting it in this kind of ironic, uh, humorous way, I think it becomes more bearable. Or like on the who's to blame question, you know, there's a, you know, one of the, the approaches the book takes is, you know, we have met the enemy. He is us. No, them, but also the West, but mostly them. And like, there's that, you know, that's again, another contradiction of, is it, is it certain bad actors, uh, like, you know, government, you know, politicians who are failing to act, you know, or, or failing to sort of step into the emergency mindset we need, or the fossil fuel company who, you know, cast shade on the scientific consensus on this question and, you know, prevented us from uniting, uh, you know, as a mission, like we did, you know, around World War II to tackle the problem. Or is it all of us, you know, all of us who, uh, you know, participate in this economy? Right. And who, you know, use fossil fuels in the ways we have to. And so I engage that debate, you know, uh, in, in, in that way and use humor to hold that. And people recognize the, you know, these the, the, the own torturous debates that go on in their own mind. And it's much more helpful to sort of see that on the page and and to discuss it at the at the tour events and stuff like that or or around the justice question. You know, I say, you know, we're all in this together, not because yes, we all share an atmosphere, we all share a macro environment, but we're really in, um, people have different levels of privilege and different level of exposure to these uh, to these impacts. And so, yes, we're all in this together, not. You know, we're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funnier or sharper gallows humor-esque way of saying, you know, the, the, the canard of we are, um, we're in the same storm, but different boats, you know? So it's like, um, yeah. So I don't know, just giving some examples there or or like in terms of what's our approach, you know, do we try to stave it off or do we try to adapt or whatever and and channeling, you know, uh, uh, reworking a sort of wisdom statement from one of Obama's top 
science advisors back in the day, you know, I say, you know, we need to choose between mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. No, or no need to choose between mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. Just get good at all three, especially suffering. You know, so anyway, there are these sort of, you know, that's where we're at. You know, that's our situation. And so we, how do we tell the truth in a way that turns our victimhood into a kind of cop, a kind of empowerment without pretending that things are better than they are? That's one of the things that gallows humor can do. An empowerment without pretending that things are better. I think that's that's a very important statement because one of the things that you said in that little interview with Peter Bermudis, which, by the way, is if you if you look for the title of the book, I Want a Better Catastrophe, um, I think you might find a, a link to that, or if you just look for Andrew Boyd on YouTube. One of the things that you said that uh, I actually found inspiring, uh, despite the fact that it sounds kind of scary, is uh, what we're doing right now is sort of like canoeing down rapids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we could just let the rapids carry us to, you know, wherever that leads, or we could put a paddle in the water and at least try to steer and at least try to make it down more safely and protect those that are in the canoe with us. That's right. That's right. So this is a you know, part of what the book, what I uncovered in my journey is writing the book is, is stories, you know, the importance of stories, what stories we tell, what stories we believe. And, um, you know, the, there are certain stories our civilization tells that have got have contributed to getting us into this mess. You know, the notion that we can have infinite growth on a finite planet or the notion that, you know, nature and our economy treats it this way, but it's, you know, built into our sort of the storytelling of our civilization that, you know, nature is just a product, you know, and, and, or just a place we can dump our waste. Right. Whereas like other stories that other cultures tell, um, and our own culture, you know, also tells about, uh, you know, in our, we can go back and find old stories that, uh, tell us not to poison our own, um, you know, don't, don't, uh, well, I can't use that word on, on the air, no, you know, don't poison, uh, your own, uh, what you depend on, you know? Uh, so anyway, so those stories are broken. Um, and so also this, this story that we are on a constant, uh, upward, uh, trajectory of progress, right? However you define that. And so the a metaphor that you mentioned that was shared with me by people who are working out different scenarios and what we can do to intervene in those scenarios when certain events play out, uh, you know, when maybe there's a, a water crunch or a little um, the food prices spike because of, um, you know, global disruptions or, um, you know, there's some brownouts and, and what have you. You know, these kind of things start to the ecological impacts that as we hit these ecological limits, they have start to have economic and social impacts. So they're plotting this out and they're looking for their own version of a better catastrophe. And a metaphor that we are not, you know, marching up a sun drenched hill to a perfect tomorrow, but rather that, you know, we built in some some trouble for us in the future so we're actually um we're in for a uh, in for a bit of a fall you know we're in for a tough period so how do we canoe down that uh that breakdown you know if there's some breakdown built into our future an empowering story is that we're in a canoe and we have some agency we're being pulled along uh you know in various shocks and slides that may come but we have places to get our oar into change course to avoid you know the worst kinds of shipwrecks until we can find uh some calm stable uh, water in the future ahead so i think for me that felt like an empowering metaphor for understanding uh, our future and it's not like give up hope because we're headed off we're just being pulled over a waterfall and headed off a cliff or you know pretend that it'll all work out but rather no we have a difficult road ahead but here's a story that has possibility and agency and hope um, without pretending things are better than they are. So, yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a central part of the book. And what does that look like? How do we treat each other as that unfolds? Um, what are uh, the solutions that we need that can help us navigate that as best we can, um, both emotionally, psychologically, and also just strategically, policy-wise, et cetera. So the book is full of all that stuff. Thank you for zeroing in on that, that particular notion. 
And, you know, I had talked about um, phone calls earlier, and we do have a call, so I'm wondering if we can take oh, a great. few moments and, and talk to our callers. Um, so let me see if I can do this. Hello, caller. You're live on Wild Earth Living. Thank you for taking my call. My question um, has to do about parents and not parents. And um, in the book, if it uh, quantifies uh, the different views of how people who are raising kids, uh, mm. maybe to just the college level, like how they look at their, their the younger generation and maybe say, oh, I'm sorry, I've been pumping Tyrannosaurus Rex into the air for the last four years. Um, but, uh, yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you so much for your call. Yeah, I can. Uh, the book speaks. That's a great question. It's uh, on a lot of people's minds. Um, when I've been doing these events, I ask people, what is the most, the hardest thing about climate change for you? And a lot of people speak, say things like, well, my kids don't want to have kids, you know, or, or like how we failed the next generation, next generations. So that comes up a lot, weighs on people's minds. I think there's a whole, there's whole movements uh, that are on birth strike you know, that are refusing to bring children into this world, you know. Uh, there's a group, uh, a leader of a group I interview called, um, um, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name and I'm sorry, but. Um, You'll have to uh, read the which book. Is, yeah, we'll have to read the book. I'll have to reread the book. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a very good and logical name for an organization, but basically women uh, and a few men who are, um considering and just, you know, having uh, conversation circles and helping each other work through these questions of whether to have kids um, and how to support them once they do have them. So it's a big thing. And there's a, there's a, there's a big piece in the book, a long exploration where I talk to a lot of people and pull in stuff that Naomi Klein wrote about um, her uh, conversations with her, her husband, uh, Avi Lewis about, um, about children and her child. Uh, in from her famous book, uh, um, this changes everything. So it's weaves all this together, um, and um, yeah, it's called "Should I Bring Children Into Such a World?" So, um, and then there's a part. There's a little part speaking of the gallows humor. There's like a moment where it goes, "Oops, I already did." You know? <laughs> and so then, what is my responsibility? Right? Yeah. Obviously, like some people are like, ask the question, "Why bother? Why bother trying to fix things?" Well, if you have kids. That answer is pretty clear, you know, because or, you've or made an ultimate or grandkids or grandkids, yeah. yeah, or grandkids, or or is what one of the people I interview uh, refers to as nibblings, which are nieces and nephews, a joint word mm -hmm. for nieces and nephews. Such a beautiful word, nibblings. Um, so we've already made an ultimate commitment to to the to the to the you know to the care of those people of those younger people and so we must create you know or do whatever we can to make the world for them their world as livable as possible now there's a new movement that speaks directly to your question called third act uh, thirdact.org you can find it there and that is a movement that bill mckibben who founded 350 and wrote the very first book on climate change and you know has been an extraordinary climate leader in this country in particular uh founded uh, as he turned, as he became uh, over 60 and he was entering the third act of his life. And he was like, we can't, uh, we can't, it's unfair for us to expect the 18 year olds to figure this out. You know, they're doing an incredible job. Greta Thunberg and her whole generation is doing an extraordinary job stepping up to this existential challenge and this failure of the, of our generation, our previous generations to, um, to fix the mess when we had the chance. So he's saying, look, us folks over 60 have a, a lot of knowledge. We've been in movements for decades, some of us, you know, all the way back to the Vietnam War resistance and civil rights. And, and we have uh, more money and more uh, social power and access to power and resources. Let's step up our game. Let's, let's uh, you know, let's do our part. And he created this uh, new organization called Third Act, and it's doing incredible things. I'll just mention they had their basically public coming out party with the, by focusing on the four banks that are doing most of the funding of fossil fuel companies, uh, and foremost among them Chase. And they launched two weeks ago 
with 100 actions all across this country at Chase Banks, um, cutting up credit cards and refusing to, uh, to bank at Chase and re- withdrawing their money and holding these very public rallies, um, the one which got uh, international coverage. Um, anyway, and I participated as on my book tour in the one in Chicago, and uh, one of my projects, The Climate Clock, was featured very uh, front and center at the one in New York. Uh, you know, we had a very big version of the clock, which you know tracks are we on uh, are we on target to meet our goals of transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables? It tracks it in real time, and we had a big one right in the right in front of Chase, right at the center of the rally. So anyway, so that's that's those are some thoughts. Um, but it is a very fraught question, and it's a. I appreciate you bringing it forward. Uh, you caller whose name I didn't catch. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think that I think that's also playing into that whole discussion about about children and taking care of children and 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 their future. That both the children that are already here and making a decision about whether you want to have children in the future. Also, what plays in there is is the guilt. Yeah, you know, those of us who are older have to face the 13 and 14 and 15 year olds or even the 20 plus somethings when they ask us, you know, not just, you know, what did you do or what didn't you do? You know, it's, uh, 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 you know, as somebody, as somebody, I, I'm in my 60s and, mm-hmm. and I have to face my 13 year old grandson when he asks me that question. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think... I think you know this. This this could be a setup for sort of defensiveness about well, we did everything we could, or or it could be a setup for, well, you know, I'm so sorry that things happened the way they did. Um, what what can we do going forward? Yeah, I like the positive approach. I think it it's important to reckon with you know if you have feelings of guilt, turn them towards a, a productive use. You know, don't let them demobilize you. Don't let them you know paralyze you turn them to a productive use. Um, we should feel a lot of responsibility uh, to do everything we can. But let's also remember that there are people who are uh, had a lot more uh, power and knowledge at the critical moments who did nothing. In fact, didn't just do nothing, but made it very hard for any of us to do anything. Um, and those are the, you know, the fossil fuel uh, industry leaders and, and their, uh, you know, partners on Capitol Hill. And they're still trying to make it difficult uh, for us to do what needs to be done. We all know what needs to be done. Even they know. That's the thing. Even they know. And they have grandchildren yeah. that are going to have to, you know, breathe mostly the same air unless they figure out some underground bunker for the next 500 years. You know, it's just unconscionable. So and some of that generation, uh, you know, some of their grandchildren and children are saying, dude, dude. You know, or, or, you know, anyway, yeah, it's just worth not, you know, we need to take, do as much as we can, but we also need to understand, um, you know, it's not about our individual carbon footprints that we should be feeling guilty about here, though we should do everything we can on that front. Um, but it's about large collective action. You know, as Bill McKibben would say, it's about using the tools of democracy. Um, even when people try to deny those tools to us, you know, including, that's where we can including get preserving change democracy. at the scale. Yeah, and preserving democracy goes hand in hand with solving or addressing climate crisis, right? They're twinned completely together as, as you know, the economic disparity in our society is also twinned um, very directly with both of these uh, struggles. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, those are some thoughts. We have some, we have one more, we, I think we have time for one more phone call. Hello, caller. You like, oops, that caller didn't hang on. Okay. So anyway, well, we are actually, you know, within just a couple of minutes of the end of the program, we have about three and a half or four minutes left. So let me, let me invite you to share with us again, if whatever contact or website or going forward sure. info you'd like to share with us and, and leave us with some, some closing thoughts about your book or maybe some quotes from your book or what, whatever you'd yeah. like to leave us with. You got it. Um, I have just a, you know, a few, four lines from the book that I think is um, speaks to the hope and hopelessness question here and why it's important to be part of a social movement. And then I'll, yeah, then I can tell you where to get the, you know, where to find the book most easily. 
So here, this is just from the very, very beginning, from the prologue of the book, as I'm in a big, in one of the largest climate march or gathering uh, to date. It was in 2014 in New York City. 400,000 people from all over the country, all over the world, uh, gathered from all walks of life um, in what was called the People's Climate March. And this was on the eve of, uh, you know, part of a mobilization effort to get that big, important treaty in Paris, which we got the next year, and to show that global public opinion was demanding this. So, you know, activism works because we got the damn treaty um, the next year and it put uh, politicians across the world on notice. We did it in, at the same time as a big UN gathering of all the heads of state, uh, you know, in the UN headquarters in New York. And it was just, I was battling with my own hope and hopelessness and talking to other people who were helping to organize this big march about their own hope and hopelessness. And here was what I sort of realized as I was battling with that was uh, in the middle of that big march. I realized that day a social movement is just a crush of people carrying each other forward. Each of us fighting our inner demons, the temporarily hopeless, tag teaming the temporarily hopeful and trading back again in a constant existential solidarity pact. You know, so it's okay to be hopeless. Other people are hopeful when you're hopeless and they can they can kind of carry you and you'll be hopeful when other people are hopeless and you can carry them and that's one of the reasons we have social movements and that's why one of the reasons social movements work so i'll just say that and then direct people to the website for the book which is bettercatastrophe.com bettercatastrophe.com and there you can find uh, all of my tour dates many of which are about to happen in california uh, in april um all across California and in, in the Bay Area, in San Luis Obispo, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, et cetera. I'll be in, uh, I'm in Seattle tonight. I'm in Portland next week. Um, and you can also read pieces of the book uh, so you can check it out before you decide to purchase um, and look at the visuals in the book and all the people I interview and all kinds of stuff. So bettercatastrophe.com. The name of the book is I Want a Better Catastrophe. Thank you, Joanna, for having me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for 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 being our guest this morning, and thank you for writing this book. I think it's a, it's going to be an, an essential um, kind of climate crisis self help manual going forward. Uh, in terms of uh, also just sort of le leaving us with it left me with the recognition that it, there's no one way to feel about it, right? It's kind of a spiraling right. kind of thing. Uh, you know, one day, like you said, one day you might be down and somebody else carries you. And the next day you, you gather your strength and you can help somebody else who is down. And it's not, you know, it's not a, a, a constant forward progress kind of thing, but it's something that we negotiate and navigate day to day. That's right. That's right. I really appreciate that. I'm going to actually quote you on that, an essential uh, self-help guides of the climate crisis. I, I, I'm going to uh, put that on the next edition of the book that's going on there. Thank you. That's a beautiful characterization. I'm, I'm glad it came across that way. I, I did something right. It's working. <laughs> oh, you definitely <laughs> did something right. Um, uh, it just from my own personal reaction to your book, it, I, uh, I've, uh, you know, to go through this sort of hitting the bottom and then coming back out the other end and saying, okay, it may not be going towards constant progress, but there are things we can do and there are ways we can be with each other that make sense. Yeah. Everything's coming together as everything is falling apart. Both of those <laughs> things are happening at the same time. Be be part of the coming together part, you know. Be let's be part of the coming together part. Thank you so much, Andrew Boyd, author of I Want a Better Catastrophe. It's a, it's a book about navigating the climate crisis with grief, hope, and gallows humor. And I especially love the gallows humor. Thank you and all the best for your book tour. And again, the website is bettercatastrophe.com. Is that right? Correct. Bettercatastrophe.com. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much, Joanne. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Andrew Boyd, for being on Wild Oak Living this morning. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.